Brothers and sisters of the New York City Church of Christ, it is my honor today to be able to share God's word with you. My name is Courtney Bailey. I currently serve as a teacher in the Kingston Church of Christ, and I bring you warm greetings from all the disciples in Jamaica and indeed throughout the Caribbean. On behalf of all the disciples here in the Caribbean and in Jamaica, I want to express our continued appreciation for the partnership in the gospel that we've shared with you. In particular, we're grateful for the financial sacrifice of the disciples of the New York Church, which has made possible the contribution that we've received towards the work of advancing God's gospel in the Caribbean. We deeply appreciate your sacrifice. I want, before I begin this morning, to especially greet Sam and Cynthia Powell, who have been great friends of the Caribbean churches over many years, and as well, Sean and Robin Barnes, who we consider to be a part of the Caribbean diaspora in New York. And then, of course, I want to say a special big up to all the Caribbean and Jamaican nationals in the New York church. I also want to make special mention of your teacher, Steve Kennard, who has been a quiet, constant, and unobtrusive supporter of the work of the teaching ministry in the Caribbean and has contributed significantly to my own development as a teacher. Steve has opened many doors and granted me many opportunities, including this invitation from the New York Church, which came through him to deliver this message to you this morning. He is an amazing teacher of teachers, and he manages to do all that without attracting any attention to himself. I know I've said too much in his mind already, so I will stop right there. But finally, I want to express our gratitude as well for lending to us Lewis and Tosan Livingston, two of the disciples of the New York Church for many years who have recently migrated to Kingston and are now members of the Kingston Church. They've already become a tremendous blessing to the disciples here in Kingston, and we are grateful for uh, your sending them to us on loan. We'll send them back. Um, but we're grateful for all the many ways in which the New York Church has been uh, a great partner with us in the gospel. We appreciate the relationship our two churches enjoy. And that's why this morning, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be able to give back to you. I'm excited to have the title, God is Love, for my sermon this morning. Firstly, because I think that these three words encapsulate more than any other what is one of the core or essential attributes of who God is. But secondly, I'm excited because these words come out of the Bible. And that means that if I can just faithfully unpack them with God's help, that our souls are going to be fed this morning because we are relying not on the word of man, but on the word of God. So let's begin reading 1 John 4, verse 7 to 12, as I seek God's help to unfold the meaning of the words, God is love. In verse 7, it reads, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. First John is a letter believed to have been written by the Apostle John as the church community that he was writing to was going through a rupture. And if we read the letter like we're listening to one side of a phone conversation, it becomes apparent if we read the whole letter that what seemed to have been happening was that some of the disciples in the community had taken on some new ideas, including the idea that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he did not come in the flesh, and that his death was not necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, these new ideas created a sharp disagreement. And what it seems happened is that the disciples who took on board these ideas, let's call them the separatists, they split. They left the church and formed their own community. But they weren't content only to leave. It seems they were sending a Roman band of preachers to all the house churches of the remaining community to try and call people out to join them because they claimed to have some special knowledge of God that the people who remained did not have. And so First John writes this letter in response to those circumstances. And his point essentially is that the remaining disciples could be assured that they knew God. And he says, one of the supreme tests for whether anyone knows God or not is whether they love the disciples in the church. So he's pointing here, I think, at the separatists, and he's saying that they failed the test because they were not loving others and were withdrawing their fellowship. So let's work our way from verse 7 throughout the text and see if we can understand in context what John means when he says, God is love. In verse 7, he writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. John calls the remaining community to love one another because love comes from God. And so loving others shows that we are God's children and that we know him. He's saying that love is God's DNA. And so if we're loving, that means we're born of him. We are his children. But he's also saying that since God is the source of love, if we are loving, it can only be because we have come to know him. And you got to think here when he says know him in terms of experiencing him, coming into contact with him. And that shows because we've come into contact with him, and we are loving that we have come to know him. In fact, John emphasizes this last point by restating it negatively in verse 8. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Not only is it true that everyone who loves knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God. Why? John says this is because God is love. In other words, love is so much of who God is that you can't know him without experiencing love and becoming someone who loves others as well. 
God is so much love that once you come into contact with him, this love that he essentially is will transform you into a loving person. In other words, if we know God, we will love others. It can't help but come out of us, this love. As my wife would say, it will ooze out of us. And that is a real test, a real sign, the real proof that we know God. But what does John mean when he says God is love? And what exactly does he mean by the word love? Let's answer these two questions beginning with the first. When John says that God is love, he doesn't mean that love is God. That's not what he says. Nor does he mean that love is God's only attribute. God has many other attributes and love is not all that God is. But notice that John does not say God is loving. He's saying more than that. He says God is love. So he's saying more than that love is an attribute of God. I think he's saying that love is an attribute that is at the center of who God is. That love is the very core of God's nature. That it is the essence of who he is. I think he's saying that love is behind all that God does, all his actions, and it is behind all that he manifests as his attributes in a loving way. Put simply, there is nothing God, that God does or is that is not loving. We have to be careful, though, to not fall into the trap of focusing on any one aspect of God's nature to the exclusion of others. And that's why in Romans 11, verse 22, Paul calls us to consider both the kindness and the sternness of God. You see, if we focus on one or the other of these two poles, we run the risk of reducing God to either sentimentality or to harshness, neither of which he is. We have to understand, however, that the difference between love and all God's other attributes is that love lies behind all his attributes. God's love is behind both his kindness and his sternness. And I think this is a part of what John means when he says God is love. Let's illustrate this with Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve and he loved them by putting them in a beautiful garden, in a beautiful world, and he gave them to each other. And despite all of this, they sinned against him. And yet, he still loved them in their sin and despite their sin by asking, where are you? He was trying to help them to figure out that they were lost. He was coming after them. And when he found them, despite their sin, he was kind and gracious enough to clothe them, to meet their needs in the midst of their rebellion against him. God's love manifested itself in kindness. But he also loved them by disciplining them. He put them out of the garden, not because he hated them or he was being vindictive. He put them out so they wouldn't take the fruit of the tree of life because he didn't want them to live forever in this fallen, sinful state. You see, God's love was behind both his kindness and his sternness because his discipline was not punitive nor vindictive, but instructive and for their good. You see, God's love is behind all his actions, 
from it all his actions flow. And we, if we had time, we could go through the scriptures, and I believe I could show you on every page that love is behind all of God's actions, and all that God, that God does flows from love. But I don't have time to take you through accounts of, of Abraham, or of, of Hagar, or how God dealt with Cain. But one of the things I think that's a great snapshot of the whole experience of the people of Israel with God is Psalm 136. And in Psalm 136, as they summarize their experience with God, the God who created the world, the God who delivered them from slavery, the God who brought them through the Red Sea, and, 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 and the God who walked them through the desert with all its good and bad, the God who conquered the promised land and gave it to them as inheritance, they summarize their entire experience with this God with four words in a refrain in Psalm 136. The refrain is, His love endures forever. I don't know about you, but those words resonate with me. Because in my experience of God, this is who He's always been. And I, I could give you one snapshot of this. When I was 20 years old, as a, a young law student on campus, and I was thinking of walking away from God, and I was in sin, and I discovered that I had a, a, a scholarship interview that I needed to pay for my university education, and I was in a terrible place spiritually. And because I didn't know, I turned up at the interview uh, dressed in jeans, and everybody else was in a jacket and a tie. And I remember trying to pray that day, and even as I prayed, I remember battling with sin in my heart and in my mind. And I thought, there's no way that God is going to bless me. Long story short, I got the scholarship, it paid for law school, and that is just a snapshot, a picture of my entire experience with God, that He has loved me in spite of me and my sin, and His love endures forever. If you've been a Christian for any time, I'm sure this is your experience also of the God who loves forever. So what is love? We now know what he means when he says God is love. What does John mean by love? He tells us in verses 9 and 10, he says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John tells us that God's love is most fully demonstrated in sending Jesus to die for our sins. And I think from these two verses, there are three essential characteristics of love that we can identify. The first is it is sacrificial. The passage says that God sent his one and only son. And that word translated only in our English Bibles is the same Greek word used in Luke 7 to refer to the widow of Nain who had lost her only son. It's the same word used in Luke 8 to describe Jairus' only daughter who was dying. It's the same word that is used in Luke 9 to describe the only son of the man seeking Jesus' help with his demon-possessed son. And it is the same word used in Hebrews 11:17. To refer to Isaac as Abraham's only son that he was about to sacrifice. The meaning of this word in these contexts is clear. God's only son was precious to him like an only child is precious to its parents. 
And yet, despite this preciousness, God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him in order to save us. So this love that is the essence of who God is, is sacrificial. And that means love involves sacrifice. John tells us in verse 11 that since God so loved us, we also should love one another. How can we love sacrificially? Well, love costs. It costs money. It costs time. It costs food out your closet. It it costs comfort. It costs convenience. You cannot love unless you're prepared to sacrifice. And sometimes we have to give up whatever is our only thing in order to love. You know, I think of my, my times in my car at the end of a work day. As I leave in that little bubble between work and home, it's my only time for me. And if I'm going to love the brothers in my small group by making a call to connect with them, I have to give up the only precious time that I've got. I'm exaggerating. But I think you get the idea. We've got to sacrifice to love. Secondly, it's other focus. God sacrifices because he's focused on others. His love is for the benefit of others. It seeks their highest good and to meet their greatest need. You know, the passage says in verse 9 and verse 10 that God sent Jesus so that we might live. And in verse 10, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why does God sacrifice? Because he saw our need. He wasn't focused on himself. Love is other focused. How can we love like God in this way? Very easy, I think, for us in this pandemic to focus on ourselves. To hunker down in our fears and maybe our family unit and to forget about others. But love asks the questions, what can I do to meet the needs of others? What do others need from me that I can give that is their highest good? Because that's what God did. He figured out what was our, our greatest need and he paid the price to give it to us. You know, it's very easy for us to, instead of focusing on others, to focus on ourselves. And then we get stuck in resentment of how no one is calling me and nobody's meeting my needs and what have you done for me lately. And when we get in that space, we cannot love. Love takes initiative. It doesn't ask what others are doing for me. It asks what I can do for others. And I know for me, that's one of the greatest challenges for me because I tend to be an introvert. But for me to respond to God's love means for me to extend myself by looking out for others. Finally, It is unconditional. You know, verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God didn't love us because we were lovable or because we first loved it. He loved us unconditionally. He didn't wait on us to be lovable to love us. In verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. He takes the initiative. He goes on a limb. Like when you have a disagreement with your wife and rather than waiting on her to come back, regardless of who is right or wrong, you're going in love and resolving it. That's the example that God has set for us. One of my favorite passages is Romans 5 or 68 where it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Love is not just loving the people who are lovable or you like or who are easy to get along with. Love, if we are to love like God, means moving out of our comfort zone, of our warm friendships, to lean in in love, 
to the relationships that are difficult, to the people who are different from us, who have different political views, who are from a different racial or ethnic background, who are of a different nationality, or who even have a different point of view, and so we're disagreeing with them. That's one of the things that love you know, impels us towards, to fight for unity, and not to withdraw our fellowship because of difference, but to lean in like God did and to love unconditionally and to not let COVID-19 be an excuse for us to stay in our bubble and to avoid the people we always want to avoid. Let's break out of our isolation and let's love like God loved. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, John says that although God is invisible and no one has ever seen him because he's holy, if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, when we love, we make God visible because people can see God in us because love is the essence of who God is. And it is a fruit of his spirit. Romans 5.5, Galatians 5.22, 2 Timothy 1.7. Read those on your own later. When we love, we put God on display in our lives. And it is the only way that people can see our holy invisible God. But not only does God live in us when we love others, in verse 12, John also says that when we love others, God's love is complete in us. That word from the Greek teleos means it's perfected in us. It reaches its goal. When we love others, the purpose of God's love for us is realized. God's love does not reach its intended end until and unless we love each other. Until then, it's incomplete and not perfected. Let's close today by turning to the cross to remember Jesus. His death is the ultimate expression of God's love. As we remember him, let's allow his death to perfect God's love in us. By loving others sacrificially, by being other-focused, and loving unconditionally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is love incarnate. We thank you for loving us in our sin and our brokenness, and for being the God whose love endures forever. Father, we love you, and we want your love to reach its intended purpose in us. Help us in response to the cross today to resolve, to love each other, and to love others in the world so that we can bring them to know you by them seeing you in us. This morning, we lift up Jesus and we exalt him because he is love. We thank you for all that you've given us, for his body which was broken in love and his blood which was poured in love. And we accept his sacrifice and respond with love from our hearts. We pray all this in his name. Amen.